welcome to Made in India SLP podcast with your host Kinari and Rabab. Welcome to Made in India SLP everyone. In today's episode we will be discussing swallowing in the geriatric population, the ITSI functional diet scale and caregiver burden in the Indian society with Dr. Ashwini Namasivai McDonald, an experienced clinician, professor and researcher in the field of dysphagia. Kinnery, can you please introduce the speaker for our listeners? Yeah, it is my honor to introduce Dr. Namasivaya McDonald. She is a clinically trained speech-language pathologist and assistant professor in speech-language pathology program within the School of Rehabilitation Science at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada. She completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Waterloo and both graduate degrees at the University of Toronto. Dr. Namasavaya McDonald's research specializes in understanding the physiological features of dysphagia in many conditions, including dementia. Her overarching research goal is to produce clinically relevant search to inform frontline clinical practice. Her current research focuses on understanding swallowing physiology in patients with dementia in order to design targeted interventions to prevent or reverse any physiologic changes. She also has a few projects focused on better understanding and identifying dysphagia-related caregiver burden and health-related quality of life. Thank you so much for that introduction and uh, featuring me on your podcast. I'm honored to be here and uh, share my knowledge and research with you. Dr. Namasavayam, thank you so much for being here today. We are excited to have you on our podcast. As clinicians, it is important to understand the difference between presbyphagia and dysphagia. So can you please elaborate on what characteristics we should be looking for in our practice to distinguish dysfunctional change of swallowing versus dysphagia, as well as tell our listeners more about what constitutes as presbyphagia, please. Sure. So the first thing we really need to consider here and understand is the difference between presbyphagia and dysphagia. So years back, Dr. Joanne Robbins defined presbyphagia for us, and it's really the characteristic changes in the swallowing mechanism of healthy older adults that result from the normal aging process. So really what this means is that these changes still allow for a functional swallow. So there's not an actual impairment. We're just seeing changes in physiology. So what happens is when an illness or disease manifests in the presence of this presbyphagia or predysphagia, patients tend to cross that line from presbyphagia to dysphagia where we see changes to the swallow that are no longer functional anymore and really end up increasing the risk of aspiration and aspiration pneumonia. I mean, in terms of what we know about the aging swallow, we know that there's pharyngeal atrophy thanks to work done by Dr. Sonia Malfenter at NYU. And then Dr. Robbins, as well as Dr. Katrina Steele, who was my doctoral mentor, um, have also demonstrated that tongue strength declines with age. So we know those two things. Dr. Paula Leslie, who's in the UK, has demonstrated that longer periods of swallow apnea um, are present in um, older adults. And then work by Dr. Jerry Logaman has shown slightly more residue in healthier adults and more occurrences of penetration. So, I mean, I think something to consider is that as we age, we often see 
a little bit more penetration, a little bit more residue. And we need to remember that these are normal, right? So we're not going to just change the diet because we see these changes. The other thing I, that I think that's important to touch on here is the notion of normal variability. So within all healthy adults, we know that there's a spectrum of normal and that this needs to be considered. So for example, work by Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris has shown us that there's normal variability in swallow initiation. So in other words, we often think that the bolus should be within the oral cavity when the pharyngeal swallow is triggered. But her research has shown us that in healthy adults, that bolus may be in the oral cavity or it may be in the vesiculae, or as far down as the piriform sinuses. And this is all within the range of normal. So what we've been calling a delayed swallow initiation is actually not problematic in and of itself. And it's only really becomes a problem if it results in an impairment of swallowing safety. So the bolus is entering the laryngeal vestibule before the swallow is triggered. I believe um, that in our practice, this distinction is so vital because we want to make sure that we are not over-diagnosing an elderly uh, person that he has dysphagia and then over-treating and just changing their diets just because we think that, it, that yeah. this is not normal. You know? yeah. Do you think there are any specific tools out there for an assessment that we can utilize to identify that the changes that are happening in the swallowing functioning Secondary to aging, can we also discuss a little bit more about the swallow timing in the elderly? Yeah, so I think, so to answer the first question, there are mm -hmm. really no specific tools to identify presbyphagia. But in my opinion, the best way to differentiate between presbyphagia and dysphagia and the differences I mentioned before is through an instrumental assessment. So this is because at the bedside, you're really only able to discern signs and symptoms of aspiration. We don't have x-ray vision, right? So difficult to tell if changes to swallowing physiology are resulting in functional changes that are actually causing an impairment. So remember, that's the, that's the differentiating factor. So we have functional changes where we're still swallowing properly versus these changes to physiology that are resulting in significant impairments to swallow safety and swallow efficiency. So that's how I just define dysphagia is that an impairment of swallowing safety. So protection of the airway and, and or an impairment of swallowing efficiency. So residue, uh, timing issues, coordination issues. So, I mean, that all said, you should only be carrying out an instrumental assessment if it's deemed clinically necessary. Essentially, during that clinical bedside exam, you're going to determine if the patient has dysphagia. You're also going to determine if you need an instrumental exam to determine exactly what is causing the dysphagia. So when differentiating between presbyphagia and dysphagia, it really comes down to if the patient is experiencing changes that are significantly affecting that safety and or efficiency. So if there are changes to physiology that are not changing the patient's functional swallowing ability, I wouldn't be overly concerned but I would urge them to monitor their swallow and come back if they, if they notice any changes. And I always also prescribe, you know, what I call general mealtime and swallow etiquette. So avoid distractions, small bites, mm -hmm. good oral hygiene. I say that to everyone. Um, and I just think it's a good way for people to become more aware. To answer your question about swallowing timing, so I did a systematic review of swallowing timing a few years ago. And 
basically uh, for that I gathered studies that looked at swallowing in healthy younger and healthy older adults and I compared them and what I found was swallowing reaction timing pharyngeal delay times and duration of UES opening are all significantly longer in healthy older adults compared to those healthy young adults in those studies and interestingly the time between bolus entry into the pharynx and epiglottic deflection is significantly shorter in the healthy old. I also found that many swallowing timing parameters appear to be unaffected by aging, such as bolus transit times, which I was a little bit surprised about. So as an Indian clinician hearing this podcast and do not have access to instrumental studies, whereas in the only test I'm doing is a clinical swallow examination, Mm-hmm. How would I differentiate between presbyphagia and dysphagia? Would I just keep in mind that this is what research has shown? Like your research shows that bolus transit time would probably be unaffected by aging. So try to keep that in mind. Yeah, so that's a really good point. And I think to begin with, keeping that research in mind. So thinking, you know, um, is that bolus transit time too long? Does it matter? The other thing I in regards to bolus transit time that I think we need to keep in mind is you also need, need to be mindful of what they're actually eating. There's some right. foods that naturally will take longer prep time. I especially see this for newer clinicians who say, well, that was a really long prep time. There's something wrong here. But you need to be realistic and reasonable and think about, okay, what are they preparing? So just be mindful of that um, when we think about things like bolus transit times. But in terms of non instrumental exams, I think, yes, A, keeping in mind the research and just knowing what to expect, but also doing a really good case history, so asking the right questions. So um, the ones I like to ask are, are there any foods you're avoiding? Is there anything that, do you feel like you cough at meals? Do you choke at meals? I also ask things like, um, do you feel like you cough when you drink or when you eat? Does your swallowing problem get worse as the day goes on? Does it get worse as the meal goes on? Do you have a swallowing problem? If you notice a problem and they don't even think there's a problem, is there something to even solve here? The one thing to keep in mind with that though, so we did a study, a heterogeneous nursing home population a few years back now, and we looked at perception of a swallowing problem. So we asked them, you know, do you think you have a problem swallowing? And then we ask them like the same questions I just told you. Do you feel like you cough or choke when you eat? Do you feel like you cough Mm -hmm. or choke when you drink? Then we watch them eat and we watch them drink. And then on top of that, we also, so we did that at nine meals. And then on top of that, we did a swallowing screening. And what I found so fascinating with this older adult population is that if they said yes, they had a swallowing problem, they were usually right. There was some, there was some sign of dysphagia. So we really, we didn't do any instrumental exams for that. We looked for signs and symptoms at the meals and the swallowing screening. But if they said they were, they didn't have a swallowing issue, I I would say half the time they were right and half the time they were wrong. So what we can take from that clinically is that their perception is correct if they feel like they have one. So if someone thinks they have one, a swallowing problem, they probably do. But Mm -hmm. if they they don't have a swallowing problem, then you probably should look some more and see if they actually do or don't. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that's something interesting to keep in mind. So asking really good questions, doing a really good case history, doing a really good oral neck exam, right? Are these, so that's where you're gonna get a sense of, instead of doing an instrumental exam and seeing this swallowing physiology during this oral mechanism exam, mm -hmm. you're going to get a sense of how are these muscles and nerves functioning? That's going to give you a sense of, okay, it's, I know they're not swallowing tasks, but could there be something wrong here? Mm -hmm. So I think those are the pieces that I would keep in mind. And then perhaps, I mean, oftentimes we say here, like, should we be doing mealtime observations? Is it a waste of time? But if you're really unsure, watching someone at their meal and then asking their caregivers. So what we right. do know is caregivers are not really good at reporting things that are emotion-based. So how does something feel? But they're really good at reporting facts. So did your care recipient um, cough? Did they choke? Did they take a long time to eat? So things that are concrete. So asking them and, and bringing them in um, will be really important too. Right. So I, I just have a question. Say, for example, we take a person with dementia, mm -hmm. with advanced dementia, where they're not cognitively responding, but they're like ready to eat. There is that automatic feeding response. Say the caregiver comes to us saying that mealtimes are so hard because mm -hmm. they take forever to eat. Say uh, we do a, a bedside swallow study and with all the diet textures, we're seeing that they're just taking equally long time to just masticate and form the bolus, but their swallowing seems fine. So in this case, what do you recommend a change of diet texture, maybe downgrading? Because we just talked about a few minutes ago that if the person has presbyphagia, it is possible that there is decrease in the tongue strength and that may be leading to increased bolus prep times, increased bolus formation. Yeah, I mean, so I'm a very liberal clinician. I really think that quality of life is important. So for me personally, I, there's a lot, I don't know if I can answer that question directly because I think there's so many factors you need to consider. And personally, if, if the swell is going well and they're enjoying their food and they're eating and there's no signs of aspiration and there's not a high risk of aspiration pneumonia, I probably wouldn't change anything. And I think uh, the paper I always refer my students to is the predictors of aspiration um, pneumonia by um, Langmore, a 1998 paper. And then she had a subsequent paper, I think it was in 2002, that looked at residents of long-term care. Why I love that paper is that it shows you that dysphagia alone is not enough to cause aspiration pneumonia, right? There's so many factors. And, and that's, you know, when I make my, this, these clinical decisions and when I, I teach students to make these clinical decisions, I encourage them to look at this person in a holistic way, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, are they mobile? Do they have really good oral care? So I tell, I, in your case, and to answer your question, I would ask the caregiver, you know, do you have good oral care? Are you doing, so if you mm -hmm. don't, if you don't want to change the diet, then, you know, we'll, will work with other factors that we can control. For whatever reason, it's if it's really taking a long time, I might suggest, you know, maybe there's some things we can modify. And then there's some things that we, you know, for quality of life purposes, will keep a regular texture, as we'll call it, right? So yeah. I think there's a fine balance to strike here, but it really comes down to looking at the person as a whole. I also really encourage people, and I know, I think of my own, family who lives in India and we don't have these open conversations enough about what are your wishes when you get older? 
right? So, and I think if we have these conversations more, and I tell everyone this, if we have these conversations more, then maybe when it comes to that point, Canary, that you're saying, we'll know what to do because we'll know what they would want, right? right? We know what would be important to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Would they want their diet to be changed? Would they just want, you know, even if they were at high risk for aspiration, maybe for them, they want to be able to eat whatever and it doesn't matter. Right. So what is what is a high quality of life for them? And the book that really influenced my thinking about that was called Being Mortal. I read it at the end of my master's and the beginning of my PhD, and it really shaped how I think about this. And I've gotten my family members to read it just for that same reason. I I want to have these conversations. I want to know what is important to them at the end of their lives. And I think as we work with these older populations, we really need to be mindful of making decisions based on our interests and what our wants are for them versus what they actually want. Thank you for answering that. I do think now it's a good time to talk about how oral care is so important, how so much research has shown that as you said, dysphagia is not the only thing that causes aspiration pneumonia. Yeah. And especially in the Indian population where a lot of individuals come from lower socioeconomic communities, maybe as a clinician, that's something that I should stress on. Yeah, I think, I mean, oral care is so important for so many reasons. I mean, it's not just about aspiration pneumonia, but even heart disease. And we know in South Asian population, there's a high rate of heart disease. And I don't know um the research behind that mm-hmm. but if you think poor oral care is closely linked to that and if it's closely linked to aspiration pneumonia then it's something that we should be concentrating on for so many reasons and i'm a big proponent of you know getting good bang for your buck so if doing good oral care is going to help you across the board then you should probably stress mm-hmm. it and, you know do it overall mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think stressing the importance to our patients and educating them about you know, why oral care is important and, you know, teaching them that they're getting some bang for their buck too, right? It's not just, you know, getting some buy-in. And I think so many times I feel like when you're working with older adults and the older generations, there's a lot of education that's needed and you need to build their confidence in you and and what you know, because they've been doing things in a certain way for such a long time and to pull them out of that can be so difficult. But if you show them, you know, if you do this, you can help this, this, and this. I mean, I say in an ideal world, they do it three times a day. If they do it twice, great. So when we are treating dysphagia, in addition to oromotor exercises, compensatory swallowing strategies, a very big important part of our treatment protocol is diet texture modifications. Globally, there was no common framework for the diet texture classification, and that gave birth to the ITSI framework, which is the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative, which allowed for fluids and solids to be categorized based on textures and consistencies. You've been part of developing ITSI functional diet scale, along with Dr. Katrina Steele, which allows us to get a clearer picture of diet texture restriction recommended for a particular patient based on the assessment by the speech language pathologist. So can we talk about how this would look in the Indian context, especially how do clinicians modify those texture modifications to our diet consistencies and our Indian cuisine? 
I guess, first of all, what I love about the IDSI framework and the testing method is that it's culturally sensitive. It allows for a universal way to describe and test different consistencies. So because the testing methods are so simple and can be done at home with a a fork and a spoon if you don't have a proper syringe. This means that patients can be put on a modified texture diet and can learn to modify the foods they love to fit within the parameters of their new diet prescription. So really the key here is ensuring that patients and their families understand how to test these different foods and drinks to ensure they comply with the diet prescription. So I'm not sure if you know, but ITZY has some great resources on their website, including YouTube videos to show people how to do the testing. So even Indian foods can be modified to fit those different ITZY levels. And to be honest with you, I think that many Indian curries and other foods require little modification in order to comply with the stipulations for certain ITZY levels, like soft and bite size. But I would really encourage um, Indian clinicians, I mean, and all clinicians, to use those YouTube videos and you know, to teach their patients, to show their patients, to act as a resource for their patients. And then to complement that ITSI framework, Dr. Steele and I developed the ITSI functional diet scale. So here, our goal was to provide clinicians with a method for measuring change in diet prescription. So typically in the US in particular, the functional oral intake scale or the FOICE is used as an outcome measure. But unfortunately, it's not overly specific and most people on a modified texture diet fit within level five or level six on the scale, which what that, if you're not familiar with the scale, what that equates to is a total oral diet with multiple consistencies, either requiring special preparation or not requiring special preparation. What this means, for example, is if someone is on a moderately thick diet and through rehabilitation, or thick liquid diet, I should say, and through rehabilitation, they progress to a mildly thick liquid, they would still be on level five on the FOIS scale, even though it's a clinically significant change. Like that's a big change to come mm -hmm. that far. But our HCFDS is a little bit more specific in the sense that it uses this what we call a bracketed system. And scoring is based on how many ITSI level your diet span. So to give you an example, if you're eating regular solids, which is an ITSI level seven, and moderately thick liquids, which is ITSI level three, you would have a score of five because your diet spans five ITSI levels total, right? So from level mm -hmm. seven to three, there's five levels. But then if you progress in therapy and are your prescribed mildly thick liquids, which is level two on the ITC framework, your ITC-FDS score is now a six because your diet prescription now spans a total of six levels. So the higher your score on the ITC-FDS system, the less restrictive your diet is. So this is a great way for clinicians to demonstrate these clinically significant changes, even in the absence of instrumental assessments, right? And it can be easily implemented into any clinic or a hospital practice. The thing to keep in mind is clinicians will just need to capture that ITC-FDS score at baseline and then along the trajectory of the patient's treatment journey in order to see how things are changing. And they can change for better or for worse. For Indian clinicians, I think this may be particularly helpful to use in, as an outcome measure. And the ITC-FDS will allow these clinicians to show changes post-therapy, which is really important. So, I mean, I think even in here in Canada, where I am, we don't have great access to instrumentals, not as great as the U.S. And 
I think this is a really useful outcome measure to show change. So I'm just thinking out loud, if alu curry, yeah. would, would you guys say that's like level five, minced and moist, somewhere around there? So it depends how it's cooked and how, mm-hmm. how you cut the potatoes. I would personally, the way I would cut the potatoes and to make it as, you can make it minced and moist, you mm-hmm. could very easily make it soft and bite-sized. If you think, so what, what is really neat about um, IDSI is they made this, like I said, culturally sensitive and universally applicable. Mm-hmm. So what they found was that the width of a fork, so prong to prong, the measurement of a standard fork is the same around the world. So what they did is, that's about 1.5 centimeters. They then made their soft and bite-sized stipulations to say that, well, a a bite-sized piece of something is 1.5 centimeters by 1.5 centimeters. Mm -hmm. And at first you'd be like, well, how would I ever know that? But you would just take a fork and you do that measurement, right? So I would then, you know, if you quickly do it with a couple potatoes as you're cutting them, You get a sense of what size the potatoes should be, and then you can Mm -hmm. include them in your curry that way, right? So I think there's a lot of applicability that way. I remember when I was working in Toronto, acute care hospital, I had an Indian patient, and we put him on a modified texture diet. I think it was minced and moist. It must have been. And his wife said to me, well, how is he going to eat chicken curry? But I said, you know, like, you just get ground chicken now. Instead Mm -hmm. of getting, you know, chicken pieces, you can get ground chicken and make it the same way. Right. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm saying. Like Indian cuisine and Asian cuisine is actually quite easy to change as opposed to, you know, this North American cuisine. Like I think I, I eat salads all the time. How do you make a salad? <laughs> so coming to our Indian society, the family easily becomes the primary caregivers of the elderly. So can we take a few minutes and talk about some tools that we can utilize to measure dysphagia related caregiver burden, and some other interventions that can be utilized to support these caregivers? Yeah, so this is a big area of interest for me, which it actually began as I watched my aunt and my grandmother in India help take care of my grandfather for almost 10 years. I was doing my research in long-term care, and I watched them take care of my grandfather, and I just realized what a big emotional and physical toll this mm-hmm. takes on the caregivers. And they were happy to do it, but it still was really difficult. They were really committed to it. So I decided to do a systematic review on this. And I, and I kind of went on this journey of looking at caregiver burden and now it's such a big passion of mine, but it really started with watching my, my family in India take care of my grandfather. So I'm now really highly motivated to better understand how we as clinicians can better support our caregivers. I really have delved into this area of research over the last few years, along with Dr. Samantha Shoon at the University of Oregon. She was already looking at this and I, um, I felt like we would be good collaborators. So we have been able to determine that dysphagia does indeed increase caregiver burden. So it's an independent predictor and that spouses of older adults with dysphagia suffer from emotional burden and children caring for their elderly parents suffer from both emotional and physical burden. And actually just recently, Dr. Shun and I created a new tool. It's a 26 item checklist and it's to help SLPs identify dysphagia related caregiver burden. And it's currently um, under review, but hopefully soon to be published in um, the American Journal of Speech Language Pathology. Mm -hmm. 
So I would eventually love to have the tool translated into different languages so that it can be used around the world and in India. So until the tool comes out, I really encourage clinicians just to think about caregivers and to ask them how they're doing, if they require any support to, care, to carry out their dysphagia-related caregiving duties. So for example, uh, do they need to be taught in detail how to test those modified texture diets to ensure that they're complying with a diet texture prescription? If they do, you know, use those YouTube videos I mentioned. The other things Dr. Shun and I have always encouraged is to ensure that you are identifying dysphagia early on so that patients and their caregivers aren't trying to figure things out on their own without any support. Like so often I see as presbyphagia occurs, we see these small changes, small changes, small changes. And then I said, you know, like in the presence of disease, it becomes a bigger change. But because people are so used to compensating for so long, they don't even sometimes recognize themselves when it crosses that line from presbyphagia to dysphagia. So really doing that screening of our older adults and, and as clinicians, you know, recognizing this dysphagia early is going to be really important. We also need to provide education to both the patient and caregiver, both verbally and on paper. So oftentimes we verbalize everything and we just assume that the patient and caregiver understand and remember everything, which is not usually the case. A lot of the time they're overwhelmed. So writing things down and explaining everything is so important. We also need to be careful not to bombard them with information, especially if it's a lot of new information. We've seen in the literature as clinicians, we use a lot of medical jargon when talking to patients and their caregivers, so we need to avoid that. Um, and then lastly, if you think that the caregiver is really having a hard time dealing with their caregiving duties, we need to talk to them and then make a referral to someone who can better support them, like a counselor or a social worker or a psychologist. And I mean, particularly in the Indian community, we need to normalize taking care of our mental health. In addition to educating caregivers and the patient, is there anything particular, like any counseling strategies that you utilize during your sessions? So I don't use any counseling strategies directly, but I just, I think it's about acknowledging the caregiver. And just saying, you know, and, and I think if you start acknowledging them and talking to them and asking them how you can support them or if they need anything, then you're going to, it goes back to that patient rapport that I talked to you about mm -hmm. before, right? You're going to build that rapport. They're going to feel comfortable talking to you. They're going to come to you when there's a problem. Then you can, you know, help them and support them to find the help they need. I really like that you spoke about mental health, how you said that we have to remind the caregiver uh, about, you know, just taking a break. I'm a big mental health advocate. Something I tell my patients caregivers sometimes is you can't care for him or her if you don't care for yourself. Yeah. We know that hiring help is a luxury. So sometimes just, you know, lend a listening ear. Maybe they just yeah. need someone to chat with, someone to vent out. And we are like such non-biased people. We, we are away from the family. Yeah. We, we're not judging anyone. We understand them. I think it's the least we can do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, it's one thing if you're a clinician in India treating Indian patients because you mm -hmm. understand the culture. But I think there's something to say about as clinicians who are practicing outside of India, even understanding the culture in the country that you're practicing in. So like not everyone's going to, as much as we're Indian, not everyone's going to have the same cultural practices as us. And under, you know, just being knowledgeable about what's culturally 
expected, appropriate. The other thing as clinicians we really need to keep in mind is just we are deliverers of facts. We deliver facts. Mm -hmm. And we have to be so careful not to impart our biases. Yeah, I do agree. Like we cannot make that decision for them, nor should we in any way indicate what decision they, they're supposed to make. Like, mm -hmm. Even if they ask, okay, what would you do? Well, I, I don't know what I need to tell you, but like, these are my options. Yeah. And it's hard, especially yeah. as you gain that rapport, mm -hmm. I think they end up looking at you to say like, okay, now mm -hmm. what would you do? And it's, it is a really difficult situation to be in, but I think there's ways of saying, you know, like if I were to consider the facts, I would just present the pros and the cons. So here are the list of pros and here are the list of cons. I don't know if there's a clear decision always. It's obviously confounding factors, but you know, just, I think really encouraging them that you're, Rabob said that you can be a listening ear and you know, as they work through this, you can present them with the facts to help them work through it. I know we had a talk earlier in the discussion meeting and we were talking about fatigue and what role it plays on the swelling functioning and uh, what we're looking for when we're saying fatigue. So um, I've always been really interested in fatigue and I did a study um, in long-term care looking at just mealtime outcomes. And I assumed that when people had swallowing issues and they had weakness, that they would take a longer time to eat because they would be more what I called fatigued. Mm -hmm. And if their tongue got stronger, they would take a shorter time to eat because they wouldn't be as fatigued. That was mm -hmm. mine thought. And as much as we were able to improve people's tongue strength, we didn't see a change in this mealtime duration. So I had actually presented this information at NYU and a doctoral student there by the name of Danielle Brates, she's brilliant. She became very interested in that. I um, recently worked with her to do a survey of clinicians to ask them, you know, how do you measure fatigue? How do you define fatigue? Do you measure fatigue? Do you think this is important? And she is still writing this study, but, uh, but essentially what she found was that, you know, we all define, not surprisingly, we all define fatigue differently and we measure it differently. So to answer your question, we, we all use this term fatigue, but there's no clear way or there's no consensus on how to define it or how to measure it. So we're missing that consensus from our field. There is research by Dr. Um, Jan van der Wegen, um, in Belgium, and he has been trying, working very hard to see how he can fatigue the system. How many tongue presses is it going to take with the IOB, the oral performance instrument, to get someone tired? And he has done a million things, and he, you know he cannot fatigue the tongue. So I mean, there's something to say if as we think about, you know, the type of muscle fibers and everything, you know, these, the tongue is essentially more towards this endurance muscle or group of mm -hmm. muscles, and it's meant to be worked, right? And if you think about it clinically, have you ever heard someone say that they're tired of eating because their tongue's hurting or that their throat is hurting? You don't, you haven't really mm -hmm. heard of that, right? But what we have heard perhaps is, you know, maybe your jaw gets tired yeah. or but even that, to be honest, I've never heard that 
I can theoretically, I can think that maybe they do that. But <laughs> I've never say, I never sometimes heard feel that. If yeah, I'm exactly. a lot of my job. <laughs> yeah, but I've actually never heard a patient complain of that, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, and I've never heard a patient complain that their throat is tired of swallowing. But I have seen anecdotally, I've seen these patients who are really tired, and I can tell you just from my clinical experience that when a patient tells me they haven't slept well at night, the next day they come to therapy, they don't do that well. Mm-hmm. Right. And, That's you know, fine. I even say I have a, a 14 month old son and the days that he doesn't sleep well, he can't even walk straight. Right. So you just, and from that young of an age, you can see the effect of lack of sleep or what we call the, what I would call fatigue mm-hmm. on the system. So I think it's something we need to be aware of, but I think we need to do a lot more research to understand it. And we need to, as a field, we need to come together and have a, make a general consensus of, you know, what this is and how we're going to define it and how we're going to measure it. Right. I do agree with you. Um, so I'm thinking of one of my patients. She's a 60 year old lady with Down syndrome. I'm just seeing her, how she's doing at mealtimes. I see that she gets tired, like her arm is tired. Right. So that's right. the only fatigue I have. But like, I have never seen her complain that, oh, she's tired of eating. She needs yeah. to stop eating. Yeah. And, but that's because of the difference in muscle composition from your Mm -hmm. limb musculature to your head and neck swallowing musculature. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, I mean, so often, and I do this too, in my research, I think I take things from the exercise science literature and I apply it to what I'm doing in swallowing. My husband's a a physical therapist. So we have these conversations. Mm -hmm. I naturally Mm -hmm. think, oh, well, you're doing that. So like, what if I did this to my patients? Like, do you think it would help? Like, what, what, what does this mean? But the big difference is not only is the the muscle fiber composition different, but you know we have weight bearing muscles versus non weight bearing muscles, right? Our head and neck aren't weight bearing, so you know it's not a direct correlation. We can't just extrapolate and use those same principles. Yeah, I mean it's really interesting. We have just, it just goes to show we have so much more to learn. Thank you so much for that. I am going to jump on to our last question. Are there any latest trends in evidence-based practice pertaining to caregiver burden in dysphagia or be it safe functional diet scale or breast biphagia, something that you can share with our listeners? So I know that in India particularly, there's not a lot of access to instrumental, but so because of that, if anyone's uncomfortable interpreting interpreting video fluoroscopy swelling exams, I highly recommend taking um, the modified barium swallow impairment training course offered through Northern Speech Services and developed by Dr. Bonnie Martin Harris. It's a tough course, but it will give students and clinicians great exposure to video fluoroscopy swallowing studies and teach them how to analyze the swallow in a more systematic way. Um, the one thing I really appreciate about it is that the training focuses on these 17 key components in the swallow um, and it just forces you to look at these different components right so even if you're not going to use that exact protocol it forces people to think about these different components and um, think about the actual physiology of the swallow so just keeping in mind that you know aspiration penetration residue are all consequences of impaired physiology so if we're going to do rehab we need to think about what is the impaired physiology and how do we target that impaired physiology in um, our intervention uh, plan and the other thing is if you're not doing because you don't have a lot of access to instrumentals if you're not doing a lot of them it's hard to get comfortable so this is a great way i think to get comfortable the there's also but a much cheaper training protocol um, program for students too the MBS IMP one, it's a, so the student training program is a lot cheaper. And then 
the STEP training protocol that was developed by Ianessa Humbert and Rinki Desai, who I believe was a previous guest on this podcast. So that's a great online portal that features lessons on many clinically relevant topics. Great images, lots of video fluoroscopies integrated. Mm -hmm. so, and I imagine, I think they're adding more information to that too. So it's regularly being updated. There are also a couple of great blogs that focus on EBP, so such as SLP R and R, and I can give you guys the links for all of this, Dysphagia Cafe and SwallowStudy.com. And then lastly, a relatively easy way to keep up with evidence-based practice is to listen to SLP podcasts like this one. So I think it's <laughs> great that you guys are doing this because I recommend podcasts like this to my students all the time. And I think that the host of Swallow Your Pride, Teresa Richard, also has something called the Medical SLP Collective, and that provides EBP resources for clinicians. And she might even have a separate collective, I feel like I've seen this, for new clinicians. So I think that's a really good way of keeping up with things. And, you know, just sometimes even if you're not practicing that area, you're not exposed, just reading about it keeps you in the loop, keeps your finger in the pot, so to speak. I also think a lot of conferences are going to be offered virtually at reduced conference rates. So that's a really good way to keep up with the latest research. And then actually the Dysphagia Research Society recently created a virtual poster hall. So our conference was canceled in March. Um, and there is a reduced rate for the talks, but it's free for everyone to access the exhibit hall. So I can give you guys the link for that for your listeners yeah. too. Um, so that's a great way just to see what's going on to keep up with the latest research. But in general of incorporating with, into your practice, I really, one thing I personally like to do is I subscribe to the journal. So what I do is I, when you go onto a journal website, so I like, I personally subscribe to AJSLP, which is American Journal of Speech uh, Language Pathology. The Journal of Speech Language Hearing Research, um, the Dysphagia Journal, International Journal of Speech Pathology, and then Speech Language um, and Hearing. And so if you go onto their website, you can sign up for a notification when they release new research. So what I do, because I can't keep up with, it's so hard to keep up with everything. When those emails come out, I just browse the titles and I kind of bookmark things that I think are interesting. I'll read the abstract just so I can keep up with what's going on. Because otherwise, it's it can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think the blogs are good and the podcasts are good because it gives you a way to listen and keep up without you know having to spend a ton of time reading through um, research papers. So you can just you can listen and you know go and read the ones that you think are most important. You can't know everything about everything. Right. So right. what are you going to be interested in? What are you going to, what do you want to improve on? What is your goal? Right. What is the patient population you're serving or what is the patient population you eventually want to serve? And just, I would say just concentrating on that just so it is not as overwhelming. So thank you for your time today and being on air to discuss such a vital topic. SLPs have such an important role in the decision-making and determining whether the person has dysphagia or not. We're so excited to share this information with our listeners. Yes, thank you, Dr. Namasivayam, and to our listeners for learning about a great new topic with us. Uh, we will be back with another exciting topic and another speaker. And stay yeah. tuned to our social media to learn more. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to see where this podcast goes and see what you guys do. And now I have another podcast to recommend to my students. This is great. Congratulations <laughs> Thank on you. together.
Thanks for joining us today and we are so grateful for all the support we've received and can't wait to see where this podcast goes. Thank you. See you soon.